Chapter 19 of The House of the Arrow by A. E. W. Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19 A Plan Frustrated. The road curled like a paper ribbon round the shoulder of a hill and dropped into a shallow valley. To the left, a little below the level of the road, a stream ran swiftly through a narrow meadow of lush green grass beyond the meadow the wall of the valley rose rough with outcroppings of rock and with every tuft of its herbage already brown from the sun on the right the northern wall rose almost from the road's edge the valley was long and curved slowly and halfway along to the point where it disappeared a secondary road the sort of road which is indicated in the motorist handbook by a dotted line branched off to the left crossed the stream by a stone bridge and vanished in a cleft of the southern wall beyond this branching road grew trees the stream disappeared under them as though it ran into a cavern the slopes on either side were hidden behind trees trees so thick that here at this end the valley looked bare in the strong sunlight but low trees as if they had determined to harmonize with their environment indeed the whole valley had a sort of doll's house effect it was so shallow and narrow and stunted it tried to be a valley and succeeded in being a depression when the little two-seater car swooped round the shoulder of the hill and descended the white ribbon of road was empty but for one tiny speck at the far end behind which a stream of dust spurted and spread like smoke from the runnel of an engine that motor dust is going to smother us when we pass said jim we shall do as much for him said betty looking over her shoulder from the steering wheel no worse behind the car the dust was a screen but i don't mind do you jim she asked with a laugh at which for the first time with a heart of thankfulness jim heard a note of gaiety to be free of that town if only for an hour oh and betty opened her lungs to the sunlight and the air this is my first hour of liberty for a week frobisher was glad too to be out upon the slopes of the Côte d'Or. the city of dijon was ringing that morning with the murder of jean cladel you could not pass down a street but you heard his name mentioned and some sarcasms about the police he wished to forget that nightmare of a visit to the street of campetta and the dreadful twisted figure on the floor of the back room you'll be leaving it for good very soon betty he said significantly betty made a little grimace at him and laid her hand upon his sleeve jim she said and the colour rose into her face and the car swerved across the road you mustn't speak like that to the girl at the wheel she said with a laugh as she switched the car back into its course or i shall run down the motorcyclist and that young lady in the sidecar the young lady said jim happens to be a portmanteau the motorcyclist indeed was slowing down as he came nearer to the branching road like a tourist unacquainted with the country and when he actually reached it he stopped altogether and dismounted betty brought her car to a standstill beside him and glanced at the clock and the speedometer in front of her can i help you she asked the man standing beside the motorcycle was a young man slim dark and of a pleasant countenance he took off his helmet and bowed politely madame i'm looking for dijon he said in a harsh accent which struck frobisher as somehow familiar to his ears 
monsieur you can see the tip of it through that gap across the valley betty returned in the very centre of the cleft the point of the soaring spire of the cathedral stood up like a delicate lance but i warn you that that way though short is not good through the gradually thinning cloud of dust which hung behind the car they heard the jug-jug of another motorcycle the road by which we have come is the better one she continued but how far is it the young man asked betty once more consulted her speedometer forty kilometers and we have covered them in forty minutes so that you can see the going is good we started at eleven punctually and it is now twenty minutes to twelve surely we started before eleven jim interposed yes but we stopped for a minute or two to tighten the strap of the toolbox on the edge of the town and we started from there at eleven the motorcyclist consulted his wrist-watch yes it's twenty minutes to twelve now he said but forty kilometers i doubt if i have the essence i think i must try the nearer road the second motorcycle came out of the dust like a boat out of a sea mist and slowed down in turn at the side of them the rider jumped out of his saddle pushed his goggles up on his forehead and joined in the conversation that little road monsieur it is not one of the national highways that shows itself at a glance but it is not so bad from the stone bridge one can be at the hotel de ville of dijon in twenty-five minutes oh i thank you said the young man you will pardon me i have been here for seven minutes and i am expected he replaced his helmet mounted his machine and with a splutter and half a dozen explosions ran down into the bed of the valley the second cyclist readjusted his goggles will you go first madame he suggested otherwise i give you my dust thank you said betty with a smile and she slipped in the clutch and started beyond the little forest and the curve the ground rose and the valley flattened out across their road a broad highway set with kilometer stones ran north and south the road to paris said betty as she stopped the car in front of a little inn with a tangled garden at the angle she looked along the road paris words air she said and drew a breath of longing whilst her eyes kindled and her white strong teeth clicked as though she was biting a sweet fruit soon betty said jim very soon betty drove the car into a little yard at the side of the river we will lunch here in the garden she said all amongst the earwigs and the roses an omelette a cutlet perfectly cooked and piping hot with a salad and a bottle of clos de prince of the nineteen o four vintage brought the glowing city of paris immeasurably nearer to them they sat in the open under the shade of a tall hedge they had the tangled garden to themselves they laughed and made merry in the golden may and visions of wonder trembled and opened before jim frobisher's eyes betty swept them away however when he had lit a cigar and she a cigarette and their coffee steamed from the little cups in front of them let us be practical jim she said i want to talk to you the sparkle of gaiety had left her face yes he asked about anne her eyes swept round and rested on jim's face she ought to go run away cried jim with a start yes at once and as secretly as possible jim turned the proposal over in his mind while betty waited in suspense it could not be managed he objected it could even if it could would she consent she does 
of course it's pleading guilty he said slowly oh it isn't jim she wants time that's all time for my necklace to be traced time for the murderer of jean claudel to be discovered you remember what i told you about hanaud he must have his victim you wouldn't believe me but it's true he's got to go back to paris and say you see they sent from Gisome for me and five minutes that's all i needed five little minutes and there's your murderess all tied up and safe he tried to fix it on me first no he did jem and now that has failed he has turned on anne she'll have to go since he can't get me he'll take my friend yes and manufacture the evidence into the bargain daddy no wouldn't do that frobisher protested but jim he has done it she said when when he put that edinburgh man's book about the arrow poison back upon the bookshelf in the library jim was utterly taken aback did you know that he had done that i couldn't help knowing she answered the moment he took the book down it was clear to me he knew it from end to end as if it was a primer he could put his finger on the plates on the history of my uncle's arrow on the effect of the poison on the solution that could be made of it in an instant he pretended that he had learnt all that in the half hour he waited for us it wasn't possible he had found that book the afternoon before somewhere and had taken it away with him secretly and sat up half the night over it that's what he had done jim frobisher was sunk in confusion he had been guessing first this person then that and in the end had had to be told the truth whereas betty had reached it in a flash by using her wits he felt that he had been just one minute and a half in the bull-ring betty added in a hot scorn then when he had learnt it all up by heart he puts it back secretly in the bookshelf and accuses us but he admits he put it back said jim slowly betty was startled when did he admit it last night to me replied jim and betty laughed bitterly she would hear no good of hanaud yes now that he has something better to go upon something better the disappearance of my necklace oh jim anne has got to go if she could get to england they couldn't bring her back could they they haven't evidence enough it's only suspicion and suspicion and suspicion but here in france it's different isn't it they can hold people on suspicion keep them shut up by themselves and question them again and again oh yesterday afternoon in the hall don't you remember jim i thought hanaud was going to arrest her there and then jim frobisher nodded i thought so too he had been a little shocked by betty's proposal but the more familiar he became with it the more it appealed to him there was an overpowering argument in his favour of which neither he nor hanaud had told betty a word the shaft of the arrow had been discovered in anne upcott's room and the dart in the house of jean claudel these were overpowering facts on the whole it was better that anne should go now whilst there was still time if that is hanaud did undoubtedly believe her to be guilty but it is evident that he does cried betty jim answered slowly i suppose he does we can make sure anyway i had a doubt last night so i asked him point blank and he answered you betty asked with a gasp yes uh, no he gave me the strangest answer what did he say 
he told me to visit the church of notre dame if i did i should read upon the facade whether anne was innocent or not slowly every tinge of colour ebbed out of betty's face her eyes stared at him horror-stricken she sat a figure of ice except for her eyes which blazed that's terrible she said with a low voice and again that's terrible then with a cry she stood erect you shall see come and she ran towards the motor-car the sunlit day was spoiled for both of them betty drove homewards bending over the wheel her eyes fixed ahead but frobisher wondered whether she saw anything at all of that white road which the car devoured once as they dropped from the highland and the forest to the plains she said we shall abide by what we see yes if hanaud thinks her innocent she should stay if he thinks her guilty she must go yes said frobisher betty guided the car through the streets of the city and into a wide square a great church of the renaissance type with octagonal cupolas upon its two towers and another little cupola surmounted by a logia above its porch confronted them betty stopped the car and led frobisher into the porch above the door was a great bas-relief of the last judgment god amongst the clouds angels blowing trumpets and the damned rising from their graves to undergo their torments both betty and frobisher gazed at the representation for a while in silence to frobisher it was a cruel and brutal piece of work which well matched hanaud's revelation of his true belief yes the message is easy to read he said and they drove back in a melancholy silence to the maison grenelle the chauffeur georges came forward from the garage to take charge of the car betty ran inside the house and waited for jim frobisher to join her i am so sorry she said in a broken voice i kept a hope somewhere that we were all mistaken i mean as to the danger anne was in i don't believe for a moment in her guilt of course but she must go that's clear she went slowly up the stairs and jim saw no more of her until dinner was served long after its usual hour and upcott he had not seen at all that day nor did he even see her then betty came to him in the library a few minutes before nine we are very late i am afraid there are just the two of us jim she said with a smile and she led the way into the dining-room through the meal she was anxious and preoccupied nodding her assent to anything that he said with her thoughts far away and answering him at random or not answering him at all she was listening frobisher fancied for some sound in the hall an expected sound which was overdue for her eyes went continually to the clock and a flurry and agitation very strange in one naturally so still became more and more evident in her manner at length just before ten o'clock they both heard the horn of a motor-car in the quiet street the car stopped as it seemed to frobisher just outside the gates and upon that there followed the sound for which betty had so anxiously been listening the closing of a heavy door by someone careful to close it quietly betty shot a quick glance at jim frobisher and coloured when he intercepted it a few seconds afterwards the car moved on and betty drew a long breath jim frobisher leaned forward to betty though they were alone in the room he spoke in a low voice of surprise and upcott has gone then yes so soon you had everything already arranged then 
it was all arranged yesterday evening she should be in paris to-morrow morning england to-morrow night if only all goes well even in the stress of her anxiety betty had been sensitive to a tiny note of discontent in jim frobisher's questions he had been left out of the counsels of the two girls their arrangements had been made without his participation he had only been told of them at the last minute just as if he was a babbler not to be trusted and an incompetent whose advice would only have been a waste of time betty made her excuses it would have been better of course if we had got you to help us jim but anne wouldn't have it she insisted that you had come out here on my account and that you mustn't be dragged into such an affair as her flight and escape at all she made it a condition so i had to give way but you can help me now tremendously jim was appeased betty at all event had wanted him was still alarmed lest their plan undertaken without his advice might miscarry how can i help you can go to the cinema and keep monsieur hanaud engaged it's important that he should know nothing about anne's flight until late to-morrow jim laughed at the futility of hanaud's devices to hide himself it was obviously all over the town that he spent his evenings in the grand Havana. yes i'll go he returned i'll go now but hanaud was not that night in his accustomed place and jim sat there alone until half-past ten then a man strolled out from one of the billiard rooms and standing behind jim with his eyes upon the screen said in a whisper do not look at me monsieur it is moreau i go outside will you please to follow he strolled away jim gave him a couple of minutes grace he had remembered hanaud's advice and had paid for his box when it had been brought to him the little saucer was turned upside down to show that he owed nothing when two minutes had elapsed he sauntered out and looking neither to the right nor to the left strolled indolently along the rue de la guerre when he reached the place d'arcy nicolas moreau passed him without a sign of recognition and struck off to the right along the rue de la liberté frobisher followed him with a sinking heart it was folly of course to imagine that hanaud could be so easily eluded no doubt that motor-car had been stopped no doubt anne upcott was already under lock and key why the last words he had heard hanaud speak were i must be quick moreau turned off into the boulevard sevigny and doubling back to the station square slipped into one of the small hotels which cluster in that quarter the lobby was empty a staircase narrow and steep led from it to the upper stories moreau now ascended it with frobisher at his heels and opened a door frobisher looked into a small and dingy sitting-room at the back of the house the windows were open but the shutters were closed a single pendant in the centre of the room gave it light and at a table under the pendant hanaud sat poring over a map the map was marked with red ink in a curious way a sort of hoop very much the shape of a tennis racket without its handle was described upon it and from the butt to the top of the hoop an irregular line was drawn separating the hoop roughly into two semicircles moreau left jim frobisher standing there and in a moment or two hanaud looked up did you know my friend he asked very gravely that anne upcott has gone to-night to madame levet's fancy dress ball frobisher was taken completely by surprise no 
Oh, I see that you didn't, Anno went on. He took up his pen and placed a red spot at the edge of the hoop, close by the butt. Jim recovered from his surprise. Madame Levet's ball was the spot from which the start was to be made. The plan, after all, was not so ill-devised, if only Anne could have got to the ball unnoticed. Masked and in fancy dress, amongst a throng of people similarly accoutred, in a house with a garden, no doubt thrown open upon this hot night, and lit only by lanterns discreetly dim, she had thus her best chance of escape. But the chance was already lost, for Hanaud laid down his pen again and said in ominous tones, The water lily, eh? That pretty water lily, my friend, will not dance very gaily to-night. End of chapter 19